If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is the World According to Zig podcast for April 7th, 2019. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of the show. We can still get the truth about the news of the day from a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. That's where you can find all of the past episodes of the World According to Zig podcast. You can also find my columns and recent news about the show. You can also check out our new podcast where we focus on Donald Trump-related news. You can find a link at freespeechbroadcasting.com to take you to the Individual One podcast. Now, that's where we discuss news revolving around Individual One, Donald J. Trump, the president of the United States. And this week on the Individual One podcast, in episode number 19, we speak with a good friend of mine, a fellow conservative, a never-Trumper, Matt Lewis from The Daily Beast and CNN. It's a really good interview, and I urge you to check it out and the most recent episode of the Individual One podcast. In the World According to Zig podcast, though, we'll not be talking about uh, Donald Trump. There's a whole bunch of other things that I want to discuss uh, and uh, on a variety of topics. In fact, there's so many different topics that I'm, I'm not going to um, preview them all in case I'm not, I don't have enough time to get to them all. Uh, but we're going to start, as we have done recently, with the never-ending saga of HBO's movie Leaving Neverland. Uh, I keep thinking I'm going to be done with this any week. Things keep happening. No one else wants to tell the truth about it, at least not here in America. And this is a subject where there is clearly an audience that wants to hear the truth because no one else is providing it. So as long as that's the case... I'll keep doing it, I guess, despite fears of my wife that this is going to turn into another whole thing that never ends. But uh, this week, there were several new developments, and they were mostly for the side of truth. Now, for those who have missed it, Leaving Neverland is the HBO movie that uh, features two men, James Safechuck and Wade Robson, making horrendous sexual abuse allegations when they were children many, many years ago against pop icon Michael Jackson, who's now been dead for almost exactly 10 years. It was directed by a guy by the name of Dan Reed. And Dan Reed has really become the central figure, certainly in the last few days, because without his own screw-ups, then I'm not sure that the truth would have had much of a chance in this case, although now... 
because he is messing up almost on a daily basis, it may actually have a chance. He's making it up as he goes and not. That's basically Dan Reed in a nutshell. And uh, Dan Reed is, is a guy who um, is getting a pass from the media in America, partially, uh, let's face it, because he's got an accent. I mean, we are just such a sucker for accents in this country that uh, if you have anything close to resembling an English accent, it's already presumed that you're much more intelligent and far more credible. Uh, and also, even maybe more important than that here in America, he has the blessing of Oprah Winfrey. So when you have an accent and you have the blessing of Oprah Winfrey, you're pretty much golden. Why this is the case, I have no idea. Because plenty of people with accents are not credible and not intelligent, and plenty of people that have gotten the blessing of Oprah Winfrey are not are not credible. Remember James Fry? I mean, James Fry, the the, the fraudulent author that uh, Oprah blessed several years ago. How, how do we not uh, ever mention this anymore? How does this not become part of Oprah's permanent record? Oprah's also the woman who, in front of the Superdome in Louisiana after Katrina, claimed that babies were being raped in the Superdome, which never even made any damn sense, not to mention there was no evidence of that, thankfully. So uh, let's talk about Dan Reed. Um, One of the biggest problems that I have had here in America, as a columnist for Mediaite, writing about all the things we've learned about what a fraud this film is, and that these two accusers are not remotely credible, is that there's this weird phenomenon of cowardice when it comes to the media, especially on issues revolving around sex abuse in general, child sex abuse in particular. And because there's cowardice, in order for the American media to do anything, they need cover. It's all about cover. It's all about protecting the gig. No one wants to get in trouble. No one gets, wants to get me too'd. No one wants to, you know, get criticized on Twitter, potentially lose their job because you can't find a new one in this environment. And once you're, you know, once you're labeled with this, it's you're done. It's over. This is this is why I'm the guy standing up because I'm a dead man walking. I don't care. I've already been incinerated so many times. It doesn't matter to me. As, as Winston Churchill once said, the greatest exhilaration a man can experience is being shot without result. I've got so many bullet holes uh, in me that I can't feel them anymore. So all, all I'm caring about is the truth. I'm not a Michael Jackson fan, but this is an obvious fraud, and someone needs to stand up. Well, even you know, I have had difficulty doing so as much as I'd like, even though prior to this week I had written uh, three uh, fairly extensive columns for Mediaite all of which have been widely disseminated, even though there's clearly an audience for the truth of this situation, the, the, there's absolutely a phenomenon that the media always looks to what the other media is doing. And so there needs to be other media who are saying the same thing if it's controversial. Otherwise, there's going to be a fear factor. And what's really interesting about leaving Neverland is it's the foreign press that has done a far, far better job than the American press with regard to defrauding this film. And interestingly, and it's been all over the place, it's been France, Germany, Spain, the United Kingdom, but really it was France that started this. Dan Reed did an interview in France 
where the interviewers clearly were not buying this. I mean, the best way I can summarize the French interviewer's reaction to Dan Reed, it was basically, uh, what is this, how do you say, this, this bullshit? I mean, that's basically, that's basically the reaction to Dan Reed. Because they actually looked at this, and the French clearly have a, have a different standard uh, for proving these kind of allegations. They don't stand for... It's, it's awfully weird to me that the French who in my mindset, I grew up in a world where we thought of the French as being wimpy because of what happened in World War II and how they just caved to the Nazis. But in the politically correct world, the French actually are ballsier than most people, and they really let Dan Reed have it. And that, I think, kind of changed the narrative in Europe. Because then other European outlets started to come out of hiding and say, well, wait a minute. There's a lot of stuff surrounding this film that don't, doesn't make a lot of sense, that's contradicted, that the, the narrative itself uh, is contradictory in many ways. There's no corroboration. There's no proof. Reed's making all sorts of horrendous allegations without any evidence against a dead man who can't defend himself. And, you know, that was all well and good. But then when Reed effectively called his own star accuser, James Safechuck, a liar and a perjurer because he changed by several years the date when he was abused, all to protect this obviously bogus story of Safechuck being abused in the second story of the train house at Neverland, which wasn't even built until two years after Safecheck says that his abuse ended. When Reed did that, I mean, that really changed the whole ball game. He's making it up as he goes and not. Because Reed doesn't seem to understand. He really doesn't. He's so dumb. I mean, he really is a dumb person, this Dan Reed, I think. I mean, he's incredibly desperate or very dumb or both. So instead of just saying, you know what, uh, Safe Chuff got it wrong on where he was abused regarding the train house because he couldn't have, he decided to extend his age to 16 or 17 years old, which, as we talked about last week, doesn't make any damn sense based upon the entire narrative of the film. And in the United Kingdom, the tabloid press there, the major tabloid press, we're all over him for this. They got it. They're like, wait a minute, hold on. They, 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 your whole fo- your whole film is about how Michael Jackson abused prepubescent boys and then moved on very quickly afterwards once they hit puberty. So how the hell does it make any damn sense when number one, you're now claiming that James Safechuck, contrary to your film, contrary to his testimony, was abused all the way to the ages of 16 or 17 when he is very mature. He's larger than Michael Jackson. How, how does that make any sense? And also, uh, there's so many other things that, that become problematic because of this. It's not just that your your entire narrative is wrong. And, and by the way, the, the, the boys that you claim Michael Jackson moved on to, like Brett Barnes and Macaulay Culkin, they say nothing ever happened. So how does that make any sense? And then there's another issue, which even I was slow to catch on to. Because when the math changes, there's like a ripple effect. Okay, not only is Safechuck's story 
now blown to bits. Not only is the narrative blown to bits, and by the way, Safechuck's credibility is blown to bits because he's lying even now, many years later, after he suddenly realized he was abused by watching Wade Robson on the Today Show in May of 2013, which of course is idiotic. That didn't really happen. Uh, but okay, if we're gonna if we're gonna buy into this fantasy, what? Not only does it mean that, but now guess what else it ha- it means? If Safechuck is being abused till 16 or 17. It now means that there is significant overlap between the abuse of Robson and Safechuck because Safechuck is only five years older than Robson. So if he's being abused till 16 or 17, that means Robson's now in the 11 12 range, which is right in the heart of his alleged abuse. But that goes against the entire narrative of the film, number one. It also goes against the idea that they had no idea that this was the case. Now, come on. Can we please keep our story straight? The whole story of the movie is Michael goes one by one. He keeps them separate. And he immediately breaks up with them once they start to get, uh, you know, uh, pubic hair. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. Hold on. That, that's not what's happening here. And how is it that that uh, Robson and Savechuck, four years of overlap, well, there was no jealousy between them? That Again, the whole movie is, you have to watch the movie. The movie's about how they were saddened and, and heartbroken that Michael broke up with them, which, of course, is insane right off the bat because we're talking about heterosexual boys. Heterosexual boys are not who clearly understand what sex is, understand that it's wrong, say things in the movie that indicate that they knew it was wrong, like Robson says that Michael Jackson told him he would go to jail and that he would go to jail if anyone ever found out about this, yet somehow he doesn't understand that it's sex abuse until his therapist tells him in May of 2012, which is asinine. But the the whole narrative gets blown apart here because they're now being abused at the same time for four years. And oh, by the way, of course, Robeson is dating Michael Jackson's niece, Brandy, who we interviewed on this podcast, her first interview after the the film came out, from the time that he's 12 years old. So none of this is, is adding up even a little bit. And because the European press starts to get all over this and specifically the UK, even though it's the tabloids, that was enough for me to be able to go back to Mediate and say, okay, uh, look, we've got all these things, uh, most of which I've discussed before on the podcast. And now uh, the UK press is, is jumping on it. Can I please summarize all the major problems uh, in the film? And so I got permission to do that. And I put that column out, which I urge you to check out. And the, and the column's title is, is about this very subject. This was the hook that I needed, which was, okay, why is it that the American media is pretending that this factual implosion of leaving Neverland hasn't really happened? Well, the UK media, for instance, is all over this. That's the headline. And then I go through the the major points only the and there're lots of stuff i left out on purpose it wasn't that i wasn't aware of it i wanted to make sure we went with only the rock solid pieces of information that have been found out since the movie came out that directly contradict the narrative 
and make it very clear that these two guys are not credible. And I went into this presuming that they were. I always do. I always start from that presumption in any story like this. And then, you know, I, I try to break it down. I go, okay, what is it that we really know? Why is it that we should believe them? What are the reasons why that maybe they are not credible? And I, you know, I, I went from believing that most of this had to be true to believing that in all likelihood, none of it's true. And that this is a scam. This is a fraud. This is a Jussie Smollett level hoax that Dan Reed has fallen for. Now, is Dan Reed capable of falling for something like this? You know, it's interesting. Uh, there's a guy named Charles Thompson, who is basically the um, the British equivalent to John Ziegler. <laughs> he's he's John Ziegler with a with a pretty British accent and and probably a, a lot better. Uh, uh, level of intelligence. And he has just been skewering the media in the UK in general, uh, but specifically over this issue. And he really understands how broken the news media is. And he, and he has been studying the Michael Jackson case for far, far, far longer than I have. And, uh, and, and all the way from the beginning. So he knows where, you know, all the factual bodies are buried, uh, he really knows his stuff. And when um, I wrote the column about the difference between the American media and the UK media, he he sent me a direct message saying, you know, this is really great stuff. What do you think's really going on with Dan Reed? And I said, look, I think, uh, Charles, that Dan Reed is a deadly combination of being dumb. I didn't mention the British accent. I should have because being in the UK, Charles probably would have appreciated that, that he's actually very dumb. He's remarkably arrogant. That's always a dangerous combination right there. When you're dumb and arrogant, and then you become invested in a narrative, so deeply invested that you're not even willing to say, okay, my star uh, victim screwed up. He wasn't really abused in these places that didn't exist. Let me just go back to that issue one more time because often context is everything. It's not just that he screws up, that he was abused in this train house that didn't exist. He claimed that was at the beginning of his abuse, which he says happened in 1988. Again, the train house didn't exist till 1994. And even then, Michael Jackson's barely in Neverland. He's married to Lisa Marie Presley. There's no evidence. In fact, Safe Chuck's own testimony says that he was never at Neverland at, at this point or beyond. Uh, and, and so th this story gets blown apart. And there are other locations that Safe Chuck mentioned that are problematic if it's 1988 or 89, which he claims was like this bizarre honeymoon period, which doesn't even make any flipping sense from a biological standpoint, especially as a prepubescent heterosexual boy. I mean, we're being asked to believe just bullcrap. It's all bullcrap. It's just obviously made up. And it's all just to try to substantiate allegations for which there's no logic or, or uh, any evidence. But I told Charles Thompson, I said, look, he is the deadly combination of dumb, arrogant, and invested with the possibility of having a weird sexual attraction to this story. And I say that very hesitantly. That's not something that I, I would like to believe is true. I don't have proof of it, but it is, it is weird. 
his obsession with this story and his willingness to try to make man boy sex seem good because that's also one of the themes of this movie which the media has conveniently just ignored uh but but th- i mean this guy I-, I can't believe he can be uh, remotely intelligent and do some of the things that he has done I- i'll give you another example he went on television uh, and you know he was asked by he was first asked by Piers Morgan. Piers Morgan was the first person to e- ask him any legitimate questions at all, and uh, he, and he was asked what evidence do you have that these allegations are true? And he actually referenced some dirty underwear from Wade Robson, from when Wade was fourteen years old, as if the dirty underwear actually exists. There's no dirty underwear. That's just a story that Wade made up. That doesn't even make any sense in itself. I've discussed before why that story that Robson told doesn't pass the laugh test, frankly. But then he also referenced to the French media, because the French media brought up, well, wait a minute, Robson lost out on this job uh, from the uh, Jackson estate uh, just before he decided to sue the Jackson estate for over a billion dollars in uh, 2013. How, how, you know, that's certainly a weird coincidence. You lose out on a job, then all of a sudden your therapist, uh, you tell your therapist, you buy your second therapist, not your first. You, you lie to your first therapist. Even Oprah was baffled by that one, <laughs> but then she ignored it. Uh, uh, and then you tell your second therapist in the middle of this nervous breakdown because your career is collapsing after Michael Jackson is dead, you uh, suddenly uh, claim that you were abused by Michael Jackson, and then you sue for millions and millions of dollars. This is a, a, a very logical timeline for a fraud. Well, Reed told the French that there's an email. There's an email of uh, Robson saying he didn't want the job anymore. And, of course, everyone's like, well, where's the damn email, Dan? Well, show it to us. If you got this smoking gun that he was the one that said he didn't want the job, not the Jackson estate, let's see it. Of course, we haven't seen it. Except I learned yesterday, I think we already have seen it. That's how, this is how dumb this guy is. I am convinced, especially since he didn't produce the email, that we already know what email he's referring to. Someone sent it to me on Twitter. I had not seen this until yesterday. There is, in fact, an email where Wade Robson, in communicating with the Jackson estate, describes how he did not want the the job of choreographing the Cirque du Soleil show in uh, Las Vegas for, for the Michael Jackson production. Yes, that's in there. Except <laughs> the entire email is a, about how he has changed his mind. And because of his other directing gig that didn't work out, now he really, 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 really wants <laughs> the uh, choreography choreography gig and which he did not get so what reed is doing is he's taking like one or two sentences completely out of context i guarantee this has got to be it because otherwise we would have seen the email because this email if you take it out of context is exactly what reed claims it is of course you can't read the rest of the email which provides you with exactly the opposite conclusion of what Reed wants you to have, which of course is why Reed won't 
release or focus on or tweet out this specific email because unless you're you know a total you will realize that this email doesn't say what Dan Reed wants it to say. It actually furthers the narrative of how desperate Wade Robson was, how much he wanted to work on the Michael Jackson show. This is in May of 2011, by the way. So this is this is almost exactly a year before Wade Robson suddenly tells his second therapist that he was abused by Michael Jackson. And even that date still doesn't make any damn sense because as I put in the column, you know, supposedly it was, I guess, May 8th of 2012, he tells his, his therapist that he was abused by Michael Jackson. There's a YouTube video that was posted in July of 2012, which the best we can tell would have been uh, recorded, this interview, at least after May 8th of 2012, where, where Robson's still glowingly talking about how wonderful Michael Jackson was. And this was made public in YouTube in July of 2012. So uh, so Reed is clearly uh, desperate. He's clearly uh, you know obsessed uh, and I think he's starting to panic. Uh, now, I'm always wary when because frankly, I think the media is being incredibly easy on him, especially in America. I mean, they've effectively decided that this is all off limits. Oprah said it was true, so it must be true. It's not worth it worth it for us to revisit. It's old news. And um, so I'm always hesitant to go with the desperation narrative. But there are some signs that he's starting to crack. And, and one of them was yesterday something incredibly weird happened. And, and so often these stories get blown apart by social media. Uh, this is really weird, and I'm not 100% sure how to interpret it, but uh, it seems pretty obvious that at some point yesterday on Twitter, Dan Reed changed his profile picture. Now, his profile picture had been a picture of, of him and his bald head, and um, and he changes it to a photo of Michael Jackson shirtless in a bathing suit many, many, many years ago. He's like in his early or mid-20s where there's a bunch of boys who are also shirtless in bathing suits who are all over him taking a photograph. Now, this is weird right off the bat as to why are you changing your profile picture to this photo of Michael Jackson? The implication, obviously, since you've just released a movie claiming that Michael Jackson is a serial child abuser, that this was somehow evidence that Michael Jackson is a serial child abuser. Well, the photograph is perfectly normal. My, my, Michael Jackson is in swim trunks. He's in a public place. Boys have recognized him. Oh, my God, it's Michael Jackson. Let's take a picture. That's all it is. There's no evidence that any of those people in the picture ever made an allegation against Michael Jackson. So so it's it's absurd on his face, but it's but it's weird that he made it the profile picture for Twitter. Except... There's some evidence, and this is this is certainly circumstantial, but it would make some sense as to why he would do this, except he immediately removes the Michael Jackson photo as his profile picture once some Michael Jackson fans start to comment on it. So why would you do this and then immediately remove it and back off of it? Well, you might do that. If it was a mistake, 
well, why would you do that if it was a mistake? Well, here's the interesting coincidence. There's another Twitter handle which goes by the name of, I want to make sure I get this right, uh, the Real MJ Story. And it's basically a Twitter handle that all it does is it tweets negative stuff about Michael Jackson and sex abuse. And guess which photo the Twitter handle for Real MJ Story has as its profile picture? You got it. It has the photo of Michael Jackson in the swim trunks being surrounded by boys many, many years ago. Bum, bum, bum. Logic would dictate that this is an indication that Dan Reed is actually running the real MJ Story Twitter handle. Doesn't prove it. Doesn't prove it. Now, there's some other indications that it might be him. For instance, the writing style on real MJ Story is similar to that of Dan Reed. The subject matter is obviously 100% consistent, but okay, that doesn't prove anything based upon the fact that this movie has gotten a lot of play. But there's a couple of other things. So, so Reed immediately takes down that photo, replaces that photo with another picture of him with his bald head, a different picture. And so that's consistent with the idea that this was a mistake. But what's interesting about the real MJ story Twitter handle is that there's an email address attached to it. Now it claims to be based in Los Angeles. So I thought, wow, okay, awesome. I'm going to email who's ever behind real MJ story. I'm not going to invite him on this podcast because Dan Reed will never have the courage to come on. I'd be happy to interview Dan Reed. I've made that offer numerous times on Twitter. I've never even gotten a response, of course, because he's terrified of me because he knows that I would uh, eat him up and chew him out. That's not even the right phrase. I would destroy him. He would be, he would be left in a puddle because he has no leg to stand on. So the reality is that Dan Reed's never going to do an interview with me, but I emailed this Twitter account. Now, you would think, let's be clear, if you're running a Twitter account for Real MJ Story and you're all about proving Michael Jackson really was a pedophile and that leaving Neverland is, is the truth, you don't. this is not a well-known uh, Twitter account. It's not got you know, all that many followers. You would think that being asked to be interviewed on a podcast – of some note, especially one that's taken a position opposite of yours, you would think that would, that would be like, yeah, this is awesome. I'm, I mean, it's, it happens to be right here in Los Angeles. Let's do this. I'm going to prove my case. Instead, crickets. No response to my email request for an interview. Now, that makes no sense at all. They'd not even get a response unless, again, doesn't prove it, but that's also consistent with this account actually being run by Dan Reed because Dan Reed <laughs> would no way, shape, or form ever respond to an interview request from John Ziegler. So what does this really mean? Well, first of all, it's an indication of what a small-time fraud this guy is. I mean, he's willing to, to clearly create a fake Twitter account to do his dirty work for him. Uh, and 
uh, it's also an indication of how small time he is. I mean, this is not the kind of thing that a guy who's credible would be doing. But it's also very consistent with a guy who did no research on this at all. That's the most startling thing. His utter lack of research. I don't think he even knew Brandy Jackson existed. I think he had no idea. I think he was shocked when he found out that Wade Robson had actually been dating Michael Jackson's niece for eight years, including during two years of the alleged abuse, and that it was a sexual relationship. And that's why uh, he had a complete meltdown over Brandy Jackson. By the way, thankfully, some of the uh, thawing in the media, and I don't know whether or not we've had anything to do with it or not, but we've certainly been trying to do our best, some of the thawing in the media has now allowed Brandy Jackson to get a little bit more traction. Billboard did a very extensive and I thought mostly very fair interview with Brandy Jackson, a feature story from Billboard. Now, Billboard, you, you know, is not exactly known for its news coverage, but Billboard's important here. Because if you're thinking about what impact this Leaving Neverland fraud is going to have, it's on Michael Jackson's music and his legacy and how he's going to be treated in the future. And clearly Billboard, being a, a music publication, is going to have uh, a lot uh, to say about that. And, you know, there, there, this is still a very serious problem for the Michael Jackson fans, the Michael Jackson legacy, the Jackson family, just last night on Saturday Night Live. They did an entire sketch, which wasn't even funny, where they had a Michael Jackson impersonator, along with what appeared to be the Jackson 5 impersonators, pretending to be Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin at uh, on a cruise ship because no one wants to hear from the Jackson 5 or from Michael Jackson anymore. Again, if it had been funny, I would have been like, okay, ha, 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 ha. Uh, but it's neither funny nor remotely factual that somehow leaving Neverland has fundamentally altered the factual reality about Michael Jackson. But perception becomes reality. And when Saturday Night Live says it's now so toxic to be a Michael Jackson impersonator that a Michael Jackson impersonator is pretending to be Frank Sinatra, that's a problem. I mean, let me take this out of the theoretical and into the practical. It, we're in my small town here in Southern California, we do these summer concerts for free. Last year, one of the summer concerts was done by a Michael Jackson impersonator. Now, I'm not 100% sure the Michael Jackson impersonator was going to be asked back this year anyway because they had a female, uh, uh, I don't know if you call him a co-host, or, or, but they had a backup dancer who basically become the, became the entire show because uh, she was hot and she was scantily clad, and I think the family audience was a bit shocked by uh, what effectively was her pole dancing during, during. The, not, now, interestingly, the the um, the people in my age group who are male didn't really mind that part of the show, <laughs> but I think some of the moms and maybe the children were a bit confused. So it's quite possible that that Michael Jackson impersonator was not being asked back for this year, but let's just pretend that the, the backup dancer had not been part of this equation. The people making these decisions are not sophisticated people, all right? They're going to go with whatever is the easiest, least controversial avenue or option. And so if there's a resistance now in perception to having a Michael Jackson impersonator, guess what they're not going to do? They're not going to have the Michael Jackson impersonator. It's just not worth it. Why bother? 
You could go in another, you know, any other direction and you're not going to get any grief. And so that's why this kind of perception is so toxic and so damaging. So, look, I, I am now 100% convinced that this movie is a fraud. This is a Jesse Smollett-level fraud that's being perpetrated here. In much of the world, I think that message is at least gaining traction. It's not in America, and it won't in America unless and until Oprah Winfrey publicly changes her tune. How to make that happen, I have no idea. I think it is theoretically possible. My wife thinks I'm crazy, and she's not an Oprah fan. But my wife always thinks I'm crazy, so let's be clear about that. Uh, of course, she was somebody who totally bought into Wade Robson and James Safechuck and no longer does because, you know, after weeks of working on her, I finally convinced her uh, that I'm right. So, you know, if I change my wife's mind, which I can never do on hardly anything, I guess maybe there is some hope for Oprah. But Oprah really holds the key here. But thank goodness that Dan Reed is such a moron. Because if Dan Reed was not such a moron, there would be no chance. Dan Reed is is by far the best weapon that the the opponents of this movie have. So please keep talking, Dan Reed, uh, and we'll continue to update it. Uh, assuming anything has happened in the future on this, at some point I want to detail what I think really happened in this whole saga because I do think it's an interesting story. But I'm going to save that for a later day. Now, speaking of the Jesse Smollett saga, there's some developments on that front where uh, he's apparently being sued and there's an, there's an effort to try to still have not just federal charges, but maybe even a way to get uh, state charges against him for having created the fake hate crime where he accused MAGA-wearing uh, guys who turned out to be Jamaicans of attacking him at 2 a.m. in Chicago while he was going to get a Subway sandwich. Uh, I was one of the very first people in the media to call out that fraud correctly. Of course, he's not going to be charged, at least not uh, anytime soon, at least not on uh, state, or state or local charges. I, I, I am all for people trying to hold him accountable. Uh, I don't know how successful it's going to be, but I, I, I'm certainly in favor of that. But I think the larger issue with Jesse Smollett is that we've accepted that most people, most rational people, have accepted that this was a fraud. So how come, if we're willing to accept that Jussie Smollett created a fraud, why are we so hesitant to presume that anyone else might do the same thing? Because Wade Robson and James Safechuck from the Leaving Neverland movie are basically Jussie Smollett, only with a larger financial incentive. So I know it's baffling to me that the Smollett precedent, if you will, that we've now been forced to accept that a, a C or D level celebrity is willing and able to pull off this kind of a fraud. Why are we not willing to do the same thing with other people? And there was another example of that this week. Now, this doesn't involve a celebrity, but I'm sure you heard about the story. It was reported for about a day or so that there was a boy that had come forward out of nowhere claiming to be Timothy Pitson. Now, Timothy Pitson is a guy, a, a boy, who went tragically missing about seven or eight years ago at the age of seven, all right? And his, his mother committed suicide and left a note saying, you'll never find him. And, of course, this is, I mean, my gosh, how tragic it is for the dad and the rest of the family. And there's been no sign of him. And it was reported this week that a... a, a, a 
it should have been reported as a man, but it was reported as a boy, I guess, somehow, had come forward and said that he was Timothy Pitson. Now, my gut-level reaction, I didn't read any of the details. I'm like, that sounds like bullshit to me. That just doesn't sound right. That all of a sudden, after all these years, he's going to suddenly come up to a stranger and say, I need help, and I'm Timothy Pitson, and, uh, and we're going to have a happy ending to this tragedy. And think, about, think, by the way, about his family, the Pitson family, thinking that it was possible that uh, Timothy Pitson was still alive and had been found and, you know, in, in decent health and that this was all going to end not as badly as you presumed that it would be and that your, your nightmare for the last seven or eight years is over. Well, eventually we find out that it's not Timothy Pitson. And I'm like, okay, so tell me about how the hell anyone ever reported that this could have been Timothy Pitson. Because as we learn more, it's obvious that nobody should have believed this story for one second. Not just because of its inherent implausibility, but because the guy who it really was, his name is Brian Rennie. Brian Rennie is 23 years old. Only Dan Reed could possibly think that Brian Rennie at 23 could be Timothy Pitson at 14. Do, do, do people not understand basic math and biology? Just look at him. He had a full scraggly beard at 14. Allegedly, even though he's, we now know he's 23. But it's worse than that. Okay, it's worse than he's 23. He refused to give his fingerprints when he was taken to the police station. Now, right there, sorry, done. You've just been missing for seven, eight years. You're claiming to be this this uh, famous missing person and you don't want to give your fingerprints then anybody in the police station who decided this story was worth disseminating to the media and it's not just because you're obviously wrong it's because of the damage caused to the Pitson family by giving them this clearly false hope and there's another factor that makes it even worse because a, 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 a Google search would have provided anybody with the information that, oh, by the way, ABC's 2020 had just recently re-aired an episode on Timothy Pitson. So right there, you've got, oh, all right. It's in it's so let's pretend that there have been no major media coverage about this for seven or eight years. It would be at least somewhat plausible and awfully weird if a if a boy suddenly claimed to be Timothy Pitson, because why would they be even thinking about it? And then it turns out, by the way, this guy's got a he just he, he was in prison recently. I mean, so, I mean, which you should have, you know, I guess you couldn't find that out until finally the DNA test proves who he is. But come on, it doesn't take Sherlock fucking Holmes to realize that this guy was not Timothy Pitson. So here's the new rule, folks. Here's the new rule. If a story smells like bullshit, even just a little bit, all right, and the media jumps on it hook, line, and sinker, 
That story should be presumed to be bullshit until proven otherwise. Now, this might dash some fun stories, but I think this is a good new rule. Of course, the media will never actually abide by this new rule, but this should be the new rule. For you as a news consumer, if a story smells like bullshit, even a little, if you get even a whiff of bullshit, like like with my two-year-old daughter, we've become very you know attuned to does she have a poopy diaper or not. Generally, if there's even a whiff of a poopy diaper, that means there's got to be a poopy diaper. Not always. Sometimes it's you know there's a mistake, but generally it's a good rule. If there's any sign of a poopy diaper, it's probably a poopy diaper. Similarly, with these stories, if you're smelling bullshit, go ahead and presume bullshit. Until proven otherwise, especially if the media is jumping all over it. Because they cannot contain themselves. Because there's no accountability for when they're wrong. At least hardly ever. There ought to be some accountability in that police department. Whoever leaked this, that it could be Timothy Pitson. I mean, assuming it's the police that that should be held accountable here. uh, Somebody really screwed up. Um, I have no transition to my next story I want to talk about other than it just goes to maybe the the number one theme of the World According to Zig podcast, which is just how bizarre my life is. Um, <laughs> I don't even know how to fully describe how weird this story is. But uh, I grew up in suburban Philadelphia uh, as a teenager in the 1980s. Now, the reason that's relevant is that for the last six years, there's been an ABC television show called The Goldbergs which is about a boy who grows up in the suburbs of Philadelphia, just a few miles from where I grew up, at exactly the same time. And the entire show is about events. Well, it's about his family, number one. But surrounding his family are events that occurred during the 80s in the Philadelphia area. That's like the fabric that holds the show together. Well, Obviously, being a normal human being, any show that's effectively about my childhood, not just mine, but millions of other people, but but clearly, you know, it's about as focused as you're ever going to get in a network television show. There's never going to be another show about growing up in the 80s in the suburbs of Philadelphia. That's never going to happen again. So I've always been interested in the show. And at first, it was really good. It was funny. It was heartfelt. There was always a nice lesson at the end. And... What I was really impressed by was that the historical references were almost dead on. I mean, like, for instance, they did a really good job of authenticating, uh, like, there's a sports element to the show. So when they used Philadelphia Eagle jerseys or Philadelphia Philly jerseys or Flyer jerseys, they were always authentic to the time that they were they were of athletes who were actually playing in that time period. So there was generally very little that was blatantly historically wrong. And, and I'm not a total stick in the mud. I get it's a sitcom. There's going to be things that aren't 100% accurate. But this show had clearly gone out of its way to try to be authentic, which I appreciated having lived through this period of my life. So I kind of took uh, a uh, not just a liking to the show, but I became invested in the show somewhat emotionally. And I really wanted the show to uh, have a, a climactic 
end because the show course is about kids getting older and the problem with a show like this is that obviously the youngest the star adam goldberg goes through puberty and once you go through puberty the show totally changes right he's a he goes from this cute little boy that michael jackson might be interested in according to dan reed to to being post puberty and of course the older siblings they start to go off to college unless of course they decide to stunt their growth and keep them in high school for like five years or six years which of course when the show is successful is what ends up happening all right so where am i going with all this so after season two i had tweeted the 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 guy who created the show the guy who's the show is about this adam goldberg adam goldberg basically did this show about his own family and i tweeted him and I, he says it's after season two that i did this i'm not sure but all right i'm gonna go with him and because i haven't researched it because he's clearly way more obsessed with this than i am he he claims that after season two i urged him to end the show and now i do remember telling him I don't think I demanded that he end the show like he claims. I think I said, I really hope you end it on a on a, a really good note before it gets too old and before it loses its crescendo and before the show loses its essence. I think that's something along the lines of what I said. But in his mind, I was demanding that I end his show. Well, you would think that the creator of a network television show that's a hit wouldn't give a rat's ass what John Ziegler tweets at him. Uh, but that's not the case. Adam Goldberg, for the last several years, has been completely, totally obsessed with me and my tweets. Uh, numerous times attacking me as for, for having bullied him <laughs> uh, and, and claiming that I'm obsessed with him. And I'm like, this is so weird. This is the guy who created my basically my favorite TV uh, comedy. I still like the show somewhat, although the kids are too damn old and the jokes have gotten old. But I still watch it, and I will I will fast forward through it because you know on the DVR, my wife doesn't like the show because she thinks it's terrible now, uh, and I understand why because it's lost a lot of its charm because now you know hell the the older brother looks like he's about 35 years old now. So I mean. <laughs> They're, I mean, they're hanging on by threads to this whole narrative of the family. But I will still, because I love the authentic elements from a historical perspective, I will take the DVR and I will go through it fast just to see what references to Philadelphia or the suburbs of Philadelphia are in there. Now, occasionally in the past, I have, I have tweeted it at him that he got something wrong. Like, for instance, one time he has a whole show about his dad and he going to the latrines at Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia and that he's afraid to pee in the latrines. And I'm like, dude, there were no latrines at Veterans Stadium. All right. Grew up in Veterans Stadium. No longer exists in Philadelphia. It's not there. You're thinking of Franklin Field. Franklin Field had latrines. Franklin Field, which still exists, which the University of Pennsylvania plays, you somehow went to a game at Franklin Field, not Veterans Stadium. Well, this enraged Adam that I had uh, that I cared about the fact that he had blown where the latrines latrines were in Philadelphia sports stadiums. So anyway, as I as years go on, and I am not. Uh, watching the show as as religiously as I used to, I've stopped tweeting at him. And I'm thinking this thing is over with. Well, this week, 
he did a, an episode, which I did happen to watch, where um, one of the subplots is the retirement of baseball legend, Philadelphia Philly, Mike Schmidt. And he does uh, this plot where he's claiming that his father has tickets to Mike Schmidt's last home game, and they decide not to go, and it turns out they didn't know it was going to be Mike Schmidt's last home game because he ends up retiring, and they're watching the news that night, and oh my God, Dad missed Mike Schmidt's last home game. Except uh, that that never happened because Mike Schmidt retired in San Diego, after letting a baseball go through his legs in San Francisco, they made a trip down on a road trip to San Diego, and without playing a final game, he just held a press conference and retired. So there was no final game in Philadelphia, and he did not retire in Philadelphia, and had there been a last baseball game for Mike Schmidt in Philadelphia, I would have known about it. It would have been a huge stinking deal because he was the biggest star of the Phillies in the 1980s. So I tweeted Adam Goldberg. I say, Adam, I even gave him a compliment because I know how incredibly fragile his ego is. I say, Adam, you're because part of the episode dealt with Spinal Tap. This is Spinal Tap. is one of my favorite uh, comedy movies, which is a, a, a fake documentary about this fake rock band called Spinal Tap. And so he's basically doing an ode to Spinal Tap. So I start my tweet by saying that, uh, hey, nice job on the Spinal Tap stuff. Uh, you know, very funny, you know, whatever. I, I forget what I said, but I'm complimenting him on the Spinal Tap. I said, I just want to mention that you made a major historical error on the Mike Schmidt retirement because there was no Mike Schmidt retirement. It happened in San Diego. Now, I, I tweeted this before I go to bed. And so I'm thinking, I'm not even thinking he's going to respond. I'm just doing this because I need someone to tell him that he got this wrong for whatever reason, I don't know what it is, this pathological need I have to set the record straight. So I wake up, and Adam Goldberg has tweeted at me like five times with increasing anger over my obsession with him and my bullying of him, and now he's getting all of his fans to attack me. And boy, for a, a comedy show about a teenage boy, his fans are like Trumpsters. I mean, they're they're cursing at me, telling me to suck a dick, telling me to fuck off. I'm like, dude, all I did was correctly point out that you made a historical error in your movie. So in the course of this, I tell somebody that part of the reason why I'm invested in this TV show is that it's about my childhood. Well, Adam, which I just explained which part, not the part about his family. The part about his family is his family, and he can do whatever the fuck he wants with it. I don't care. He can lie all he wants, but you can't change history, especially when part of the show is supposed to be authentic. He then takes that and decides that I have this bizarre obsession with him where I think I was part of his family and that that's why I'm so upset that he's not getting it correct. I'm like, oh, my God. I cannot believe this is happening. This, this, is, this is like Alice in Wonderland. So I'm spending an enormous part of my day responding to all these morons, including Adam Goldberg. And, of course, and the funniest part of this whole deal is his whole narrative is this Ziggler guy is obsessed with me. And I'm like... Dude, could you please like count up the number of times you've tweeted at me over the last several years? And he says, oh, trust me, 
I have it all on record. I've kept a folder of all of your tweets at me. I've even thought about contacting Sony security to make sure <laughs> to make sure that you're not allowed on the lot while we're shooting. <laughs> this cannot be happen. This cannot be real. This 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 has to be some sort of an April Fool, a late April Fool's joke. But it's clearly not. So I finally just said, look. Adam, uh, I I don't know whether or not it's the falling ratings of your show, whether or not you're worried about it not being picked up for season seven, uh, or or whether you just have this weird obsession with me. But I want to end this by saying, look, I, I if you're in need of help, I hope you seek it. Um, but most importantly, I hope that you will find a way to properly end this show before it's too late. Uh, and uh, I. I am I'm baffled as to how and why this whole thing has happened. My the Oxum's razor, uh, you know, simplest explanation is he's panicked about the ratings for the show, which have gone down. I don't know whether or not it's going to be picked up for another season, but I really, honestly, sincerely want the show to end on a good note because it had some really good elements and it's been an important part of my life. But as my wife is completely baffled by this, how is it that people who you like end up hating you? because that's because i mean obviously i was a big fan of the show at some point and yet this guy uh is obsessed with and clearly hates me uh that's my life that's that's the john ziegler narrative in a very short sentence right there and it baffles the hell out of my wife a couple final notes uh, speaking of the sports stuff the ncaa final four i gotta tell you that tomorrow's um virginia texas tech game I, speaking of dipping ratings, I will be shocked if Virginia versus Texas Tech is not the lowest rated national championship game ever as far as uh, ratings are concerned. I don't know about total audience because obviously over the years uh, the population increases, but from a ratings, purely rating standpoint, Virginia versus Texas Tech, what a snooze fest that's going to be. I mean, I'm mildly interested in Virginia, but I have been saying for years that the NCAA basketball tournament is in big trouble uh, because we live in such a short attention span world now. We move on so quickly that nothing sticks, that, there's, that there's, there, there isn't the same impact, for instance, of making the Final Four that there used to be. Making the Final Four used to be something that people would remember for years and years and years. Now, unless you're a super fan of that team, you forget about it the next year. Like, for instance... Tell me who the two teams that lost in the uh, Final Four were last year. Villanova won. I honestly cannot tell you who the other two Final Four. T- oh, actually, wait a minute. Only Loy- I can tell you Loyola, right, because Loyola was the big Cinderella. But that was a once-in-a-lifetime story. But I don't remember who the fourth team was. And that's you know largely because of our short attention spans and the fragmentation of our media, and we don't focus on anything. And eventually that's going to come back to haunt the NCAA basketball tournament. I think we're going to find out uh, tomorrow night, on Monday night, when the ratings are are record low, much like the Academy Awards. The same thing's happening with the Academy Awards. But Virginia, Texas Tech, because there are no stars, and there's no narrative that's exciting, and there's no history, and they're both uh, schools from very small towns, Lubbock, Texas, Texas, and Charlottesville, Virginia, hardly media giants, we're going we're gonna to see uh, the lowest, I believe, uh, television ratings in the history of the NCAA Finals. And uh, I think that the NCAA tournament is in trouble in the long haul. This week is going to be the Masters. 
And, of course, I always get a lot of questions about Tiger Woods, since I used to be the biggest fan of Tiger Woods on the planet. used to have a website, TigerWoodsIsGod.com. I've been amazed and stunned by his remarkable comeback. He deserves all the credit in the world for that. But uh, the idea that Tiger Woods is going to win the Masters uh, is borderline delusional. Uh, Is it theoretically possible? Yeah, it's theoretically possible. We're talking about a 2% shot. 2%. Much less than Donald Trump beating uh, Hillary Clinton in 2016. Much less. Uh, The reality is that Tiger will probably uh, contend. He'll almost assuredly make the cut because that's what he's really good at. But the idea that uh, in a major championship, under normal conditions, he's going to be able to make enough putts at Augusta National. His putting is not what it used to be. It is very difficult to uh, win Augusta without putting tremendously well or hit enough fairways. See his biggest his biggest weaknesses right now are the uh, the stray tee ball, which can now hurt you badly at Augusta National, which has not always been the case. When he won it the first time in 1997, you could spray it all over Augusta National, but they changed that, so he no longer has a power advantage. He doesn't hit it straight enough to contend over four days without paying a huge price, and he doesn't make enough putts. So I just don't see how unless everything came together, he got some help from the weather, and nobody shot real low. I mean, you would have to, it would have to be almost more of a perfect storm than what happened with Jack Nicholas in 1986 for a Tiger Woods to win the Masters. Would I love to see it? Absolutely. But I just I do not think that that is um, a likely scenario to occur. So we'll find out because we'll do another edition of the World According to Zig podcast next weekend, and uh, we'll update you on that and I'm sure whatever else happens over the next week. As always is the case, I ask only two things of you. Number one, please share this podcast via social media, Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, what have you. And number two, if uh, you're one of those people who sleeps and when you sleep, you use sheets, please pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. This is the World According to Zig podcast, and our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah, they're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh, no wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. (laughs) (laughs) Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.